This is episode 31 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Sting Broderson. Hey, 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 how's everybody doing today? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I am accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And I'll tell you what, folks, we have got the coolest interview for you today because our guest is a person who went and interviewed 30 different people. And let me just give you some names of some of these people that she's interviewed. She has interviewed Warren Buffett. She has interviewed Kathy Ireland. She has interviewed Anderson Cooper. She's interviewed Jim Koch, who founded uh, Samuel Adams. Uh, she's interviewed Michael Bloomberg. And I could keep going on and on and on. I mean, what kind of access you're going to get today to hear about these interviews from these people? It's just phenomenal. And so what she did is she interviewed 30 different people that are just enormous successes in all these different fields. And then she wrote a book. And the name of the book is Getting There. Uh, it just came out this past week. And she summarized all these interviews. And, and each interview is about six pages in the book. And so her name is Jillian Zoe Siegel, and she's here today to talk about um, all these different interviews that she had with these people. So um, without further delay, we're going to go ahead and, and Jillian, did you have anything that you wanted to add or uh, highlight about the book that um, maybe I missed? No, you did a great job. All right. Perfect. Um, so this is just, uh, I can't stress it enough, folks, the, the information you're going to get out of this is just uh, fantastic because she just got the behind the scenes access and really the point of the book. This is the thing that I really want to highlight is that she talks about the, the idea that the path to success isn't necessarily what a lot of people think that it is. People would think that, um, a person like Michael Bloomberg just, you know, he came from maybe a wealthy background and all these people just naturally had this stuff handed over to them. But what she debunks in this book is she talks about that struggle and those stories for each of these people and how they broke through and the things that they did to go from just being a nobody to being, you know, a billionaire or whatever the case might be for each one of them. And so that was what was really amazing about the book is she talks about those points, those things that they had to do in order to break through. So uh, without further delay, we're going to go ahead and kick this off. And I'm going to take the first question, Stig. So uh, the first one that we got here is we're going to start off with the discussing Warren Buffett. So in your book, one of your main points that Warren Buffett made uh, during your interview, was it really fun interviewing him, by the way? Was it? It was it was incredible to interview him. I mean, he he um, he's amazing when you can view him from a distance. But there's something really powerful about, you know, being in his presence and um, and being in his really down to earth office. You uh, you know, you wouldn't believe how uh how i guess down to earth it is it's, well no let's talk fancy. about that yeah let's talk about it so you know what's really cool and i didn't say this in the introduction was uh jillian took all the pictures of each of the people that she interviewed so she actually has a picture of warren buffett sitting on his desk in the book um yes. so one of the things that i noticed in that picture uh, the first and foremost he has like this tray that he's that's right there on his desk and it says the too hard banner. It says too hard. And I just found that hilarious. Was there anything else that you saw when you were in his office that was just really kind of unique? Something really unique these days. And you might not be able to notice because he's sitting on his desk, but behind him, there is no computer. That is Come on. <laughs> <laughs> There's no computer. He doesn't do that. So, well, I mean, is he just reading the Wall Street Journal? I mean, did you guys talk about that at all? Or was it just something that you kind of noticed and were kind of floored by? <laughs> you know, it was something that I noticed. It was something that I had heard. And so I didn't bring it up. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> I did. <laughs> but um, and you know, it, it was it was about five years ago because it took me five years to do this book anyway. But it was about five years ago that I that um I was in his office last. And so I don't know if he uses one. I think he uses a computer to play bridge, but that's it. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, yeah. We know he's a big bridge fan. I didn't know that he didn't even have a computer there on his desk though. Yeah. <laughs> now does he have a TV in there? Is he watching TV? 
You know, I don't remember. I bet there might be. I, you know what? I don't remember if there was a TV or not. It's like um, it's a, you know, a big corner office, but it's not fancy in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, Compared to some of the other people you interviewed, I'm sure. Compared to Leslie Moonves' office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but Jill, it's just one floor, isn't it? Like the, the headquarters of, of Berkshire Hathaway. Is, is that true? Um, actually, I think there. I was only on one floor, but I think there is another floor where there's conferences. But, you know, con- like um, conference rooms and stuff, because I remember them talking about something, about, you know, photographers setting up or something. But... Um, but I had I was scheduled for 10 to 15 minutes with him. So as soon as I walked in there, uh, I had my camera, you know, at my eye <laughs> because because, um, because I didn't want to waste any time. And and, you know, really, that is way too little time for the kind of interview I wanted to do. And and luckily, we ended up spending about an hour together. And so I got all the wow. information in the book. Wow. So he gave you a full hour. That's amazing. Yeah, he he is a great guy. Um, and, you know, I got to ask him everything I wanted to ask him, except about the computer. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. You know, it's funny in his shareholder letters at the end of his shareholder letters, he always in a passive aggressive way he brags about how small his headquarters is. Um, what is it? It's like 30 or 40 people, Stig. I can't yeah, remember. Seems about right. It's not more. You wouldn't believe that it's one of the biggest companies in the U.S., right? When you're yeah. looking from it, from the outside at least. I don't know about the inside. Absolutely not. I actually just recently went to Bloomberg's headquarters. It, yeah, yeah. That is like you know out of out of a science fiction movie. Like you're surprised. <laughs> anyone's walking you'd expect they should all be on segways or something (laughs) (laughs) no that's that's a great point because you look at uh berkshire i'm pretty sure their market cap's over 300 billion so when you think of that their their market cap's over 300 billion dollar company and they've got like 30 or 40 people working in the headquarters and that's it i mean that's just mind-blowing it's just insane it is i think that i think um you know he keeps it simple and I think, and he speaks about this in the essay, he, he is a big delegator, but, but he really pays close attention to the people he delegates to, and he's a great judge of character, if I don't say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You're so smooth. Yeah. You know, that no. gets to the question I was actually going to ask was what you're hitting on here. So let me just read this question here. I have it written down. I say in your book, one of your main points that Warren Buffett made during the interview was that most people go through life using up a very small part of their potential. He said that the people that functioned best were the ones that were efficient opposed to the ones with the biggest engines. So based on your interview, how do you think that uh, became so efficient? How do, how do you think he finds these people that are so efficient? What is he really looking for that describes that? Well, I think that he has um, he he just, you know, has a has great intuition um, and he finds people who he trusts, I think. And um, and he is such a remarkable person that I think he makes everyone want to make him proud. Like everybody cares what he thinks because you can't not. Yeah. Um, So I think that it, it, it works both ways, that people feel good probably that he that he trusts them and gives them responsibility and they don't want to let him down yeah um and he says something in um in in my interview with him he says it's important to realize that other people are going to make mistakes and he's made mistakes and with his managers he just has to decide whether he they know what they're doing overall or not you know i really like that point because i see so many leaders Um, have this zero defect environment that they try to, um, that no one can make a mistake. And if you make a mistake, you're done. I mean, you really see that a lot in in large organizations, robust organizations, that there's this zero defect environment. And I think that you're actually setting a standard for people to lie to you, for people to tell you whatever in the world it is that you want to hear, opposed to what the truth actually is. And so when you see somebody like Buffett sitting up there at the very top of such a large organization and he's saying, you're going to make mistakes. And when you do come and tell me, we'll work through it. We'll figure it out. I mean, that's really what you're getting at. And it's it's yeah. amazing that 
Um, more people don't adopt that. It's it's just crazy to me. But yeah, he's, he says in in um, in his in the interview, he said, I'm not big on blame. And by other people's standards, I'm probably quite tolerant of our manager's mistakes. Like he doesn't want to blame people because he knows he makes mistakes, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think he has other options. Like he wants to run a really small operation. And I think it's almost <laughs> impossible if he has to micromanage. I can't remember how many thousands of tens of thousands of, of people he's employing. So if, if he wants to have this very, very small operations, I mean, he needs to trust people, right? So it's yeah. kind of out of the necessity, but I also think it's it's the way that he looks at, at business, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I mean his his um his direct companies that he ha- he owns operationally owns I want to say is close to 70, 70 mm. businesses. I mean that's just crazy when you think about it. And then you're not even talking about the non-operational subsidiaries like Coke and, you know, IBM and some of those other ones that he's, you know, he's actively involved in but he's not act- you know managing cuz it's just a passive role. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, stick- As you can hear, Jillian, we really geeks about Warren Buffett. You know, yeah. <laughs> we know all the all the nitpicky facts. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, uh, that's good because you know, originally we was actually going to interview about interview you about Warren Buffett, and now we're just jabbing. Yeah, we're talking about what we know. Yeah, it's 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 a bad job. <laughs> we're doing a bad job here. Okay. I, I like okay. hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's take the the next question. Um, so I once read a story about Warren Buffett, and he it was emphasizing the importance of learning to ask the right questions. So he tells a story about a person standing next to a dog and a stranger. The stranger asks the person, does your dog bite? The person said, no. So the stranger reached down and petted the dog, and the dog bit him. Alarmed, the stranger said, I thought you said the dog doesn't bite. So the man said, well, that's not my dog. <laughs> So, Jillian, <laughs> um, you interviewed 30 of the most successful people, you know, in the world. And very few of us could only dream to have access to, to these people. So how do you come up with the questions that, that you had to ask them? Um, what's the process for preparing for the interview? Um, here's what I did. You know, I, I looked everybody up and I prepared as well as I could um, but really, I think when you're um, if if all I would ask them about was the stuff that was already out there, what good would that do? So I looked them up to know as much as I could. But then I made sure to ask open ended questions so I could learn new material. Um, and I think that's something people have to do in life. You know, um, you, you've got to you've got to not always talk about yourself and just listen to others because um, you get some great things when you do that. Absolutely. Okay, so I got a, a question off the cuff here. So uh, one of the people that you interviewed was uh, Sarah Blakely, who's the uh, billionaire that founded Spanx. And I recently saw that you wrote an article uh, how you landed your interview with Warren Buffett based on some of the advice that Sarah gave you. So can you uh, talk to our audience a little bit about that? Um, all right, well... First of all, Sarah Blakely is incredible. She um, she wanted to be a lawyer her whole life. And, you know, her whole life was geared toward that. Her father was a trial lawyer, and that's just what she wanted to do. She knew she was going to do that. Then she bombed the law school admissions test twice. She, you know, the first time she studied, picked herself off the floor, took it again. She did one point worse than she, than she did the oh first time. So... <laughs> She was not feeling too great. She ended up getting a ride. um, I mean, getting a job loading rides at Disney's Epcot Center. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And then she spent eight years working for a company that sold fax machines door to door. And it was during that period that she had her, you know, aha moment. And um, she... She was trying on a pair of white pants and she thought that it would look better if she had some kind of controlled top pantyhose underneath. The only problem was they didn't make those without the feet. So she just wanted the top. So she invented something called Spanx, which is basically footless controlled top pantyhose. It's evolved into a lot of different things since then. It's a shapewear company, but it's every single lady knows what this is and every single man has been has been out with a lady wearing Spanx, unbeknownst to <laughs> Every him. Every man has benefited from them. 
Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, so so Sarah is such a gutsy person. Like, you know, she's she started her company with her, um, you know, with her guts, basically. Yeah. And she um, she it was hard for her to even get a prototype of, of Spanx made. She would kind of camp out at the mill owners in the, in their waiting areas because nobody would even take her call. And um, and then when she finally got her prototype made, she convinced the buyer at Neiman Marcus to order her product by taking the buyer into the bathroom and showing them what her butt butt looked like with and without Spanx. So in her white in her white but she, pants. But she went on. I mean, it was it was totally off the cuff. From reading it, this in this in the book, it was amazing because you talk about how hard it was to get into one of these interviews. But then she just had this opportunity where she had a buyer and she just takes them into the bathroom, and it was just like so off the cuff. And she yeah. pulled off the move of all moves. It was just like life changing, you know. Yes. So so I was really, you know, impressed with her and inspired by her. And I was at an event um, that Warren Buffett was at and I wanted to approach him to be in getting there to be in my book. And um, I'd already been rejected by his office once. So it was a little bit, you know, uncomfortable to go up to him. And it wasn't even like we were supposed to go up to him and all of that. So, of course, I was nervous, but I thought to myself, Sarah Blakely would do it. She would not let this opportunity pass. And I just knew if I didn't do it, I wouldn't want to face her again. (laughs) And I also would feel so bad about myself. So, you know, the least I had to do was ask. So I went up and I asked him really quickly. And basically, he just said, you know, get in touch with my office. So I had to... um, send all of the information in, you know, what the book was and everything. Uh, and I got in that way. So, so this is a story of persistence. You know, if, if there's one thing to take away from the first story with Sarah Blakely and then the story with Jillian getting the interview with uh, Warren is it's all about being persistent. You heard her say, I already asked and I was denied. Well, so 99% of the people out there would say, well, he's inaccessible. I cannot get an interview with Warren Buffett because I tried, I asked, and they said no. But you know what? You just kept at it. And I think that that's the biggest key. And, and I think, you know, when you go through all the interviews in your book, that's one of the main themes that I saw was these people are persistent. They don't, they do not take no for an answer. They just keep at it. And um, it's, you know, it's a fantastic point And it's really representative of yourself as well, Jillian. Thank you. You know what? If I had to say, one, you know, theme or one characteristic that everybody in the book has, it's that it's the resilience. Like they get knocked down, they get back up, they get knocked down again, they get back up. And if you keep doing that enough times, one of your things is going to pay off. You know, one of one of your ideas, one of your efforts, whatever it is, you just have to be resilient and you have to know that, you know, failure is just part of the process. And Kathy Ireland has a quote, which I just love. She says, you know, if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. (laughs) And it's just good to remember that when you fail. No, absolutely. Just to think, okay, I'm doing my job. I'm doing what I should. Yeah. But what about you, Jillian? Like, were you so uh, determined that you want to have Warren Buffett in the book that you was just keep on trying until you got him on the burgo. What was your strategy for that, actually? How, how long can you do this? You know, here's the thing. You have to make a balance between being persistent, but you also have to be polite and you also have to have, you know, a monitor. So if you get a real no from somebody, from the real decision maker, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, then- it's not one of the gatekeepers. Exactly. Then you might then you might take it as a no. You might wait a while, then try again. But you don't want to be an annoying person. And that that's you know, that's something you've got to look out for. But somebody told me very early on in, in the process, uh, a friend of mine named Steve Cohen, he said uh, we went to college together. He said, don't take a no from someone who can't give you a yes. And what that. Oh, means- I love that. 
Isn't that good? That is good. Yes. So, like, if you get a no from somebody's publicist or someone's assistant or whatever, don't really take that so seriously because you don't know whether the real decision maker ever even saw your request. Like, like we were discussing with Warren Buffett, these people are very busy and they have to delegate. So some people screen requests for them. Mm-hmm. And and it's not a scientific process. They might screen out a request that the decision maker would have said yes to. So I always say, you know, like if you can't get in the front door, try the back door. If that's locked, try the side door. And if that's locked, try climbing in a window. <laughs> if you can't do that, then then try the front door again because someone might answer this time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, How to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments. How investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income. And how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. But the key is there's a lot of ways to get in. And I think that that's what you're really getting at with your analogy is people just try the front door. And typically that's the hardest one to get in. So, um, you know, stay yeah. persistent and, and get creative with your with the way that you're going to approach it. I mean, that's if awesome. somebody's publicist says no, try calling their office, try calling a business that they run. Try, you just have to try getting in any way. And then really, in the end, you could only lead a horse to water. So. You just have to make sure that the horse saw the water. And what I mean by that is you have to make sure that the decision maker really saw your request. And so with a lot of these subjects, I was, you know, rejected so many times when I finally got in. The person never knew I had even asked before. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't know. That happened with Frank Gehry. I was the architect, Frank Gehry. I was rejected four times, two times on my own. 
two times via, you know, someone who knew him. And then one day I just decided emails are free. I'll send another one just to, to the, you know, the address listed on his website. And somehow I got in that way. So, and here's the, here's the real message for the audience, because I don't think everybody out there is going to be trying to write a book with, uh, you know, all these different celebrities in it. The, The key point for you who's listening to this is if say there's a job you want to go get, or let's say that there's something that you're really desiring and there's these gatekeepers or there's something in your way. If you're, you, if you're looking for investors for yeah. your business or anything, yeah. Whatever it is, you need to listen to this tale and this story of, of her persistence to go out and just find these interviews with people that most people, to even get one interview with these people would be, you know, might somebody might try one to five times and they wouldn't get it and then they'd just be, the whole book would be done, you know. Don't. You've got to stay persistent and you've got to stay consistent. You've got to do the same thing. You've got to be very systematic in the way you do things. And if you do that time and time again, it's amazing what will come your way um, and, and how it will lead you to that goal that you have. So just an incredible story. I think more towards you, Jillian, than anything else well, the to be able to land is, all this. The good thing is... um. I was doing a book on this very subject. So just every person I met kind of kept me going (laughs) in the process of making the book. I I would, every person I met, you know, John Paul DeGioia, who is the founder of John Paul Mitchell hair systems and the Patron spirits company, the, the tequila company. He has an incredible story anyway, which we could talk about or not, but everyone, every one of these people kept me going. Yeah. So Jillian, uh, one of the main goals for writing this book was to figure out whether success was a prerequisite for some people or whether it was an acquired personal skill set like tenacity and strength infused from experiences. So what is your conclusion based on these interviews? Um, Well, my conclusion is that I think you are born with a certain disposition and you're probably born with certain natural strengths and weaknesses but if i thought that that was that and your fate was sealed at birth i wouldn't write an inspirational book like this i think that um i think you're born with the kind of skill set and then you have to know how to reach your potential from what you know what you're born with and um and I think there's a tremendous amount that you can do, you know, that you can learn. So it's like a nature versus nurture um, question. And I and I I believe in both. Um, and so, you know, Warren Buffett talks about um, your circle of competence. And he says that you've got to do something that you're passionate about. You have to pursue something you're passionate about, but you also have to pursue something that is within your circle of competence. And what he means is that no one is good at everything and you've got to know your strengths and weaknesses and pursue something you're skilled at. Um, He says the most important thing in terms of your circle isn't how large it is, but it's how well you define the perimeter And if you know where your edges are, you're way better off than someone who has a circle five times as large, but is very fuzzy about the borders. Um, He actually quotes his friend, um, Tom Watson, who's the founder of IBM, who said, uh, I'm no genius, but I'm smart in spots and I stay around those spots. Um, (laughs) George Soros is real big on saying that as well, where he... He says that he's very good at knowing whenever he's wrong. And he attributes most of his success to the fact that he can attribute that. But that's just a a side note. And, you know, in my book is a good example of this because everyone in my book was selected because they're at the top of their field. But you couldn't interchange them all, you know. So someone, um, different artists and different you know, different people, not everyone would do so well if they were in the other person's business. They're all pursuing something that they're passionate about and good at. And that is why they're successful. So uh, Michael Bloomberg attributes his success to a lot of his success, not all of it, but a lot of his success to being an early riser. So he has a really funny story in your book where he's talking about coffee and tea. And can you tell that story to our audience? Because I think they'll really eat it up. 
Yes. Okay. Well, one thing that a lot of people don't know was that early in his career, Michael Bloomberg was fired. Um, he worked for Solomon Brothers and he loved it, loved it, loved it. But after 15 years there, they they sold the company, they restructured and he got the boot um, and no one came running to give him another job. And so that is why he started his own company. And, um, and so that's a great story in and of itself. But while he was starting his company, he wanted some feedback. So he used to go <clears throat> to the, um, the coffee store across from Merrill Lynch's headquarters at six in the morning and he'd get a coffee with and without milk and he'd get a tea with and without milk and he'd put them in a tray and then he would go roaming the halls of Merrill Lynch looking for an executive who was sitting alone reading the paper. He'd pop his head in the door and he would say, hi, I brought you some coffee. Can I bend your ear? Because he wanted feedback on his business. And <laughs> he says, no one's going to kick you out if you brought them a coffee. And um, and and then he said, if the person said, I don't drink coffee, he'd say, well, then I have tea. Um, so so what I love also about this story, you know, he's also got that that chutzpah, uh, the guts, you know, that that Sarah Blakely has. Um it also shows that when you're starting your own business, don't think you're above anything, you know, walk around delivering coffee and tea if you need to, to, to get what you, what you want or to help your business. And so the, the, the reason he had the, the four different kinds of tea and coffee is because, uh, and you talk about this in the book, whenever he'd go in and he'd say, Hey, you, you want a coffee? And the person would say, no, I don't drink coffee. And he goes, well, I've got a tea. You want a tea? And he just see, he had every option available. He had it completely mapped out yep. so that there was no way they could back out of the, yes. the request. With, without milk, everything. He had them all. He had sugars on the side. <laughs> he was like a little a mobile coffee shop. <laughs> mm -hmm. Hey, and just so our audience knows. So Jillian lives in uh, Manhattan. So you, you heard a little bit of the noise there in the background. But um, Stig, do you got the next question? So, Jillian, this uh, question, that's also about uh, Warren Buffett, at least at least partly. So, uh, despite all his wealth, it's clear from the interview uh, with Warren Buffett that he's extremely humble. And he's rather saying that America has been fortunate to reward him his unique skill set than saying he deserves his wealth from working harder and being better than other people. Uh, you also find that Michael Bloomberg gets his drive from people saying what he can and can't do. So all of these questions must have made a great impact on you. Um, who has made the biggest impression on you and why? Stig, that's a that's a great question, but a tough one because it's sort of like asking me to pick my favorite child. <laughs> and I, I pretty much I love everyone who's in the book. I pick them all because um, they're so inspirational and I admire them. But... I think it is hard to have Warren Buffett in a book and not really fall for him. Um, so, but since we've talked about him a lot, I'm going to talk about someone else and that's J. Craig Venter. He is a scientist and he was the first to sequence the human genome. And what that means, because I didn't really know exactly what that meant before I researched him, reading a genome is basically reading uh, humans DNA uh, to see what it has to say and the med medical possibilities that this information can lead to are endless so basically if you know what genes a certain person has and you understand what that means you'll know how likely someone is to develop a certain disease and if they do develop that disease what you should do what kind of treatments will respond best to that and um, he has just an incredible story. Well, number one, every single person listening here benefits from from this information. You know, every time you go to the doctor, it's just it's brought um, a whole new level to the medical profession with what they can what they can see and how they can um, help us. Um, are they are they, you, Jillian? Oh. Are they designing uh, just just different <laughs> medicines around the fact that they understand how the how the DNA is constructed? Is that what the, what you mean by that? 
they're doing everything like all everything's basically is stemming from this now wow. it was a big breakthrough a huge breakthrough for for diagnosing you know it used to be that a doctor would look at you and take your blood or whatever now they can look at your dna it's just another step not wow. not just your blood um <clears throat> anyway so so you would think that this genius scientist would have been a good student growing up, but he, Craig Venter, he, his name is Jay Craig Venter, but he goes by Craig. So <clears throat> he slid by high school on a D minus. Literally, he would have failed. How is that I don't even know how that's. <laughs> I, I just, I mean, that's just crazy to me how somebody could keep going. I don't want to interrupt you. I, I'm just, I'm floored by that. Yeah, he, he the only reason he he graduated is that they made him write an extra um, an extra paper so they didn't have to see his face again because um, <laughs> he used to spend his time sitting in the back throwing spitballs at the teachers. And he said one of his friends was an actual member of Hell's Angels. He'd been left back so many times. He was way older than Craig, but that that's who he hung out with. And then when he graduated, he had no intention of going to college. He moved to Southern California to be a surfer. And, um, and his job was putting price tags on toys at Sears at night. Um, Unbelievable. Right. Then, then the war in Vietnam got in the way of this and he got drafted before he knew it, he was shipped off to Vietnam. He was in the medical corpsman school. And um, what he saw there was really overwhelming. He saw hundreds to thousands of people his own age yeah, dying. Coming, coming back with limbs and everything <clears throat> imaginable from war, yeah. Everything imaginable. And he didn't really believe in what America was doing there. So it was really tough for him. He... He tried to actually commit suicide. He describes this all in the book. And in the middle of his attempt, he he realized that he wanted to live. He actually saw a shark. He was trying to drown himself and he saw a shark. Anyway, you'll have to read it in his own words in getting there. But um, this changed him and he decided that he wanted to live. And then he decided that he wanted to help people. He was going to become a doctor but then he decided mid-process that if he was a scientist, he could help more people. The story goes on and on. You know, just read it. I'd say everyone has to read that story, um, you know, and how he got to where he was. It, it, the path was so I'm, crooked. How old was he at this point? Because for me, I, I, you know, most people, if they don't start going down that path by, you know, like 25, 30, it's very the, the amount of friction involved in, in achieving what he's achieved is very difficult. But he sounds like he was kind of at that age. He was maybe in his late 20s when this happened. And, you know, he'd been out. He'd been out. He'd been in Vietnam. And then after the war, he went back and he started in a community college. He said he had to learn how to learn for the very first time because he pretty much, as you could tell by the D minus, ignored school. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he just he ignored school. But he was a super brilliant person. He just wasn't into school. He actually jokes that he came out of the education system with his curiosity and imagination intact because he avoided the education system. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's that's a really cool story there, Jillian. I, I that's Yeah, you that's have fascinating. to read it. I, I the thing is, I could talk about any one of these people for, you know, 2 hours. So I just don't want to spend the whole rest of this podcast. No, that, you know what? Let's let's transition into a, a different person that really there was something that this uh, lady said in your interview that uh, just blew my mind. And I really liked it. And her expertise was she was a uh, very famous artist. Her name is Marina Abramovic. And uh, she had this quote where she had this uh, professor in college whenever she was uh, learning how to be an artist. And she said, in postgraduate school, I had a special professor who told me something I will never forget. He said, if you draw with your right hand and become so skilled that you can even close your eyes and make any kind of a drawing, immediately change to your left hand. And then she said, repetition will kill you. Can you explain this conversation to our audience and maybe uh, add some more context to this? Because I found this very, I loved this quote. This is probably one of my favorite quotes in the whole book. 
Here's the thing. Um, you know, our world is complete is always evolving and changing. And that's what's necessary for growth. Um, and if you just kept doing the same thing over and over again, where would we be? We'd be back in the Stone Ages. So people have to keep doing new things. And one the main thing that stops people from trying new things is the fear of failure. Um, so, you know, it, if an artist gets, um, you know, recognition for a certain kind of art, but just does that and does that and does that and to, to death, that's what she's saying. You know, it'll kill you. You just doing it. We need, we need to evolve and you need to not be afraid of failing to do that. And she says that sometimes she's, she's tried things that, that have been terrible, that have flopped, that she's thought have been terrible. Um, but, but that's just part of the process. It's, it's a function of comfort. So a lot of people do something and they get good at it. Like, like it says, you're there with your right hand and you're so good at it, you can close your eyes and they get comfortable. And unfortunately for a lot of people, they, they lose uh, sight of all the other things that are out there that they could potentially do and be successful at because they never try it because they never step out of that comfort zone. Something else that I, mm-hmm. that I really took away from that quote, Jillian, was And recently in my life, I've come to realize that the more vantage points that I can see something from, uh, the more truth illuminates. Um, And I think that with her quote there, she's talking about if you only see something from the right hand and you only do it the one way your whole life, your 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 ability to see all the other people's vantage points on maybe that particular issue are completely blinded. It's like the curtains are closed. But whenever you have the ability to step out of your own uh, maybe preconceived notions of what you think the truth is and you really try to understand maybe your opponent's point of view who has a completely different opinion and you really try to immerse yourself in their vantage point it's amazing how much truth and and light just illuminates from that Mm -hmm. so so um one of the big themes in my book is that you've got to question everything but you have to expect resistance to new ideas and approaches. And there are so many examples of this in my book. Um, You know, the architect Frank Gehry is in my book and he says he was always questioning everything. And early in his career, people were not reacting well to this because people get threatened by something new and different. People are comfortable doing things the same way and if you do something different, it's almost like it's a threat to other people's comfort, their other people's way of doing things. And it takes a while to sort of get used to it. So Frank, he was called in by um, his architecture professor, the second year of architecture school. And the guy said to him, listen, I think you should get out of this field now. You are never going to make it. Can you imagine? (laughs) And then and then it seems he, like they all have a story like that. <laughs> they all seem like they've had that person in their life. Yeah. that says, you're going to be horrible at this. You need to stop doing it. When Frank Gehry started his own practice, he was on the verge of bankruptcy for a long time. And all of his colleagues, they were all very dismissive of him and they made fun of his work because it wasn't what they learned in school. It wasn't what architects should be doing. You know, a lot of people care about what you should be, or that's not the way we do things. Or and another example is Muhammad Yunus. He, um, he grew up in Bangladesh and the country was in a really terrible state back then. Um, there were people dying in the streets there. There was a famine and he decided that he could help a lot of these people by lending them a tiny, tiny amount of money. It could change their lives. So he wanted to start a bank that would lend tiny amounts of money to really poor people. No one was in on that, uh, in on this with him. They all said, say goodbye to your money. This will fail. This will fail. Well, he, he started this bank anyway. It's called the Grameen Bank, and he won a Nobel Peace Prize for it. And it was a success. Wow. He says that if you observe something that bothers you, you should just make your own action plan to fix it. And there are many things that are designed in the wrong way. And you shouldn't think that other people know more than you. Your theory might be right and you can become the new expert. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. 
For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right. Back to the show. That's really, really beautiful. And I really love that we're talking so much about the education system, even though that seems like a lot of the most successful people, apparently, just, they just fail. <laughs> I don't know if that's really motivating for students out there, but we have this saying in the education system that the, the good student uh, knows the answer, but the brilliant student asks the questions. And uh-huh. you know, I, I think that that's really uh, something to think about because... I mean, you you can't get your know, A's if you are you know knowing all the right answers, but that's really not the the whole point about being a student. And I think that's something a lot of students really you know they miss the target here because they're thinking I need to know the answer to the questions that my professor is asking, but instead they should be saying, "Is it correct what he's saying? Can I challenge that?" And I think a lot of people won't ask because they might be afraid of provoking uh, people, but. Basically, you know, we, we need to be challenged, we need to be original. And it seems to me, after reading you, the, the fantastic book, uh, Getting There, is that um, a lot of these people are very original. I mean, the reason why they got ahead is because they're doing something different. It's not because they're doing the same thing as everyone else. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, at least that was that was my takeaway from from the, reading it. The ev- interviews. Every one of them are creators. That's the thing. They're not, uh, you know, they're all creating something very big. Like you know, some might argue that Warren Buffett didn't create anything. He's just an investor. I would totally disagree with that. I mean, he's a person who is creating. Um, he, he created Berkshire Hathaway, and for anyone who knows the history of Berkshire Hathaway, it was a uh, textile business that was on the verge of going bankrupt, and he came in and created it into what it is today. It's amazing what he's accomplished with it. But every one of these people created something very unique in whatever their field is, and that's why they've you know risen to the top. And 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 one thing. A lot of people in the book, you know, we were we were kind of bashing the education system, but everybody in this book would say that education is really important. And one of the things that Warren Buffett thinks is the most important skill a person can have is good communication skills, both in writing, you know, and in your speech. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of ways to learn that. But certainly in my case, um, uh, I learned a lot of that in school and in law school, you know, J- uh, Jillian, tell the people what you wrote in the book about uh, what he has on the wall, um, what diploma he has on the wall and in reference to what your comment you just made. OK, well, up until the age of 20, Warren Buffett was petrified of public speaking. And when I say that, I mean, he would literally throw up at the thought of having to get up in front of a crowd and say anything. So he arranged his whole life so he would never be in this situation. If if there was a class he, that in business school or something, he just wouldn't take it um, if that was part of it. So he one day forced himself to sign up for the Dale Carnegie Public Speaking School. And he has the certificate from that $100 class on his wall and he says that um that this 100 dollars certificate has had more of an impact on his subsequent success than any other degree he has uh because it really taught him communication skills and what's really essential no matter what business you're in is getting other people to follow your ideas so if you're a salesman You want people to, you know, buy what you're telling them to buy. If you're a manager, you want them to follow your ideas in business. What whatever it is, you know, if you're making a book, you want to convince people to be in the book. You want to present it well. You want, you know, if you're looking for investors for your company, same thing. So anyway, he he talks about the importance of this. And I think that um, that that education, you know, in school can really help this, but so many other things can, I'll tell you one thing that is one of the most surprising things I learned in doing this book is how many of my subjects credit early jobs in sales for giving them the skills they needed for their ultimate success. And one of these skills is being a persuasive communicator. That's uh, Mark Cuban's biggest uh, point in his book uh, that he wrote. Uh, is he if you're a person who came out of sales, he immediately likes you because that's kind of where he got his start was in sales. And he just can't stress the importance of that enough. I, mm-hmm. I want to highlight, too, that uh, Jillian talked about how uh, Buffett had this uh, Dale Carnegie certificate in his office. He does not have from my understanding and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he does not have um, uh, his diploma from Columbia or anything else hanging on the wall. It's just that certificate and then a picture of his dad. Is that right? Well, I think he probably has some other pictures and things, but he but he has no other no other degrees or anything. That's that's it. No business wow. school, no college, nothing. Hey, I, I want to ask this one and this will be our last one, uh, Jillian. Uh, well, actually, Stig got one after this. that He's going to ask that we ask everybody and we want to ask make sure we ask that. But uh, the question that I got for you really relates to your interview with uh, Anderson Cooper, because I found this interview with him really fascinating and it really kind of. Uh, I had a preconceived notion about Anderson Cooper. I thought because he came out of the Vanderbilt family that he had all these connections and that's how he landed his position at CNN. And he was just he was basically from the the family and the background that had all the connections for him to get to where he's at. That was my preconceived notion. But then after I read this interview that you had in your book, I was floored at what I was reading and how he got his start and how, um, you know, it talks about it. And I'm just going to give a quick 
thing here. So um, he definitely was not your typical case. Specifically, his brother's suicide and his father's death played a huge role in his achievement and how it basically flushed out any fear that he had in his life to be able to do some of the things that he did. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about his story and, and, and some of those finer points? Um, well, yes. So, so basically his father died when he was 10 and when he was 21, his 23 year old brother jumped off the terrace of his family's penthouse apartment as his mother pleaded for him to stay put. So he had a lot of tragedy, um, in his, in his life. And I think that, um, that, you know, he wanted he wanted to sort of be around other people who had gone through tragedies and survived. And he sort of wanted to see how they did it, which is why, you know, a lot of his career, he has been going to different war torn countries um, and being around these people because he can really identify with them. Um, but. Another thing about him that was really surprising is you would think that um, because of, you know, his family's wealth and connections that he would have, you know, gotten an in on connections. But the truth is that he could not get an entry level job at any of the major networks after he got out of college and he went to Yale. (laughs) So it wasn't even like, you know, he went to a top school and had a, you know, a wealthy family, but still he couldn't get an entry level job. So he ended up hearing about um, an agency that produces youth oriented programming for high schools called Channel One. And he got a job as a fact checker there. But really, he wanted to be a foreign news correspondent. And he quickly realized that when you do a job at a company, people there just tend to pigeonhole you in whatever role you're in. And if you want to do something different, you have to make that happen yourself. You have to either specifically, you know, ask. And if if that doesn't work, you've got to do something drastic sometimes, he says, to change people's perception of you. So what he did is he quit his job. He went overseas, lived on five dollars a day sleeping in roach infested hotels and rooftops. And he shot his own stories and he made them as interesting and dangerous as possible, then offered them back to channel one for such a low price that they couldn't refuse. And that is how he broke into the business. And and during this time, he wasn't on contract with this little high school news company. He just basically said, you know what? I'm not a fact checker. I am going to be on the show. And he just up and left like basically quit his job completely goes over there is paying on his own on his own dime to shoot this stuff with his own little handheld cam recorder and then mm-hmm. he's sending these videos back and he's saying hey will you buy this from me is yes that- <laughs> yes that's exactly what he did he just it was you know what i think that no matter what field you're in you have to be an entrepreneur so like everyone has to be that if you you know if you're an artist you have to be an artist entrepreneur you just everyone is you know he's a journalist but that doesn't mean he got in to some track and went along he made his own path and made his own opportunities yeah i think that's a really good point because you know as I read all these stories, as you're saying, they're all entrepreneurs i mean they're doing something original something people haven't done before I mean, I, I couldn't find a place in the book where you said, so I started as an assistant and then I became associate. And then, I mean, yeah, that, you don't see that at all. You're right. No, that's no. not the story of, of this sex with people, right? No, you've got to like, you know, you have got to think your way to the top and claw your way to the top and sweat your way to the top. Yeah. I really like the, the point with the Anderson Cooper that you're saying is so many people get a job. And they're told that they're a fact checker or they're told that they're a whatever. And if once they're told that they kind of believe it, maybe they still have aspirations. But the longer that they stay in that role, like if Anderson Cooper stayed in that role as a fact checker for five years, he might still be a fact checker today, but maybe working for a different company because he had it ingrained and beat into his head that that's what maybe some other person thought that he was a fact checker. But if you stay in that role for too long and you might actually start to believe that you are a fact checker, even though you might not be. 
And I think it's really important for people to stand up for what you think you are. And uh, just because other people are telling you that you are a fact checker, you need to go out there and create your own destiny and and push back and uh, be mindful of the fact that the longer you stay in that role and what people are saying that you are, the the more, more likely it is that you might become that. Yeah. And you need to just decide on your own what it is that you want and just go for it and make your own opportunities. That's right. All right, Stig, uh, give her the final question that we uh, give every one of our guests. Yes. So one of the questions that we always like to ask the people that we interview is what the book they like the most. So uh, aside from your own, of course, uh, do you have any other books that have drastically shaped your life? Uh, If so, what are they? And how have they impacted you? Well, one book that I that I find myself thinking about a lot and I read it years ago. uh, It was called The Glass Castle. Have either of you read that? I have not. Okay, it's a great read. And it's it's by a woman named Jeanette Walls. And she grew up in such um, an impoverished and dysfunctional family. And she found success. So it's a memoir, but it is it's so um, inspirational. And it makes me feel like the best parent. (laughs) 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 i'm sure you are jillian (laughs) um no but i but i just think like you know she went through that and she made um you know she became a journalist so jillian i'm gonna i'm gonna throw this out there and i know that i'm probably gonna embarrass you when i do this but and i'm not just saying this because you're on the show but this book was truly inspirational okay whenever i read this book and i was going through each one of these stories Um, that's really what I got out of this. This was, this was a book of inspiration as you're reading this, because each one of these enormously successful people aren't talking about all the things that they necessarily did right to get to where they're at. They talked about their struggles and their hardships and how they are so human. And I think that that's a a tribute to your writing and, and your writing style in the book is everyone came across as so human and you can really empathize with them, even though they're these, you know, countless people and they're billionaires. You can really empathize with the, each one of these people. And it's a it's an inspiration for me and for Stig and for anybody else that reads this to know that, hey, these people are just like me and I can achieve at this level if I stay persistent and if I create my own uh, business or I'm an entrepreneur and if I push back against what other people are telling me that I might be or not be. And so I'll tell you, for our audience, this is a book that I am heavily promoting and I'm doing that for a reason is because after you read this, you're going to be just so much more enlightened as to what it is that you've got to do in your life in order to take it to the next level. Whatever your ambitions are, you're going to find it in this book. So um, the the name of the book is Getting There. Uh, We'll have a link to the uh, book in our show notes. So if you guys can't remember, if you're driving into work or whatever, uh, just go to our show notes. We'll have a link there where you can go to uh, Amazon and find it. Uh, Jillian, did you have any other places that you wanted to hand people off to? A lot of people are are curious about how these essays came to be. Um, and basically, I would interview each subject and I would take the transcript and it was probably about 20 pages each. And I edited it away to uh, about five or six pages per person. And when I was done with that, I would send the essay back to the subject for his or her approval, because I wanted everyone, I wanted to make sure I didn't mess up anything in the editing process. And I wanted everyone to be completely comfortable with what they shared and how they came across. Um, So, you know, each essay is just about five or six pages, which I like, because you could pick the book up, read one, put it down. It's not a big investment. It's a, it's a great coffee table book too, because if somebody's sitting there, they can read the Warren Buffett story in not a real short amount of time, but it's just enough that you really get the essence of what he's talking about. And that's what I liked was, um, everything's very compact and you really get the essence of each of these people. That's, what's great about it. But yeah, and perhaps what what is even better or what I would thoroughly enjoy was the the pearls. So like yeah. really short paragraph at the end of each of the interview that Jillian is uh, is making. So they would just say, so what is your takeaway advice for the reader Warren Buffett? Right. So it was really compact and that's really suitable for a coffee table. It, it is. It really <laughs> is. The problem with mine is if I put it out on our coffee table, A, my son would probably throw it all over the place because he's two. Uh, but 
everyone else that would look at this, they would see that the whole thing is yellow because I have the whole thing highlighted with all the different quotes and things that were in here. So, uh, Jillian, <laughs> yeah, no, it was really good. So, Jillian, great to have you on the show. Thank you so Thanks. much for uh, being with us. And uh, for our audience out there, uh, we'll see you guys next week. We're going to skip over the question this week, but uh, next week we'll have the question from our audience. Uh, and if you want to submit a question to our show uh, that could potentially get played on a future show, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your question there. So I'd like to thank everybody for joining us and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. 